Hello everyone, it's Tim Watson, that's Cotton with a W. This is episode three of The Gift, the podcast that focuses on the power of the mind and presence overcome life and health challenges, bringing more resilience, calm and joy. Today I have a wonderful guest. Uh, his name is Ollie Rayner. His story is against all odds. You'll find out exactly what that means as we dive into his, his story. So Ollie is 43, born in Birmingham, but um, was, grew, grew up in Devon. Very keen sportsman and a semi-professional golfer. Traveled the world in his early 20s, very envious of him. And had 10 years working up in London, in the city, in mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance and private equity. 10 years is enough for most people. He did very well. He's co-founded three companies. Um, but the big reveal is he has uh, the lung, uh, the genetic lung condition, cystic fibrosis and cystic fibrosis related diabetes. He's worked with uh, many uh, uh, CF foundations. I'm going to call it CF, cystic fibrosis, CF, um, including the UK CF Trust, the US CF Foundation, and has been a regular keynote speaker at national conferences. Sadly, his health deteriorated and he was on the waiting list for a new set of lungs for over two years and amazingly received a double lung transplant in 2017, which has transformed his health and his outlook. Ollie is now a regular runner, keen traveler, and an active member of the CF community. Welcome to the podcast, Ollie. Thanks, Tim. It's good to be here. So for those that don't really know much about cystic fibrosis, I'll just give a brief summary of um, how you got it um, and maybe your previous medical regime. Well, I was born with, uh, with CF, with cystic fibrosis. It's a genetic disease that you inherit from, uh, from your parents. So... Um, it's all I've ever known. Um, I, in the, when I was born in 1975, less was known about the disease and diagnosis was less sophisticated. So uh, it was a case of me gradually becoming poorly and my mum and dad noticing that I had problems with uh, breathing and infections and with digestion. And I won't go into the de details of that, but it was... Um, it, it, something wasn't right and uh, eventually I was three years old when um, I was diagnosed through a sweat a sweat test which is the uh, the classic way to diagnose cystic fibrosis because one of the ways it uh, manifests itself is that you have very salty sweat and so that's a good way to test whether or not you have the disease but nowadays um, it's picked up through genetic tests and newborn screening so um, babies are diagnosed just a few weeks after birth a lot of the time uh, but but when I was little that didn't exist and and I was clearly poorly and the diagnosis in some sense was a help because um, it meant that there was a, a sort of a pathway and some treatments and um, some some solutions to make me feel better by the way I think it's maybe harder now for parents who are given this news that their kid has CF when they as far as they're concerned is a healthy baby I think that raises different issues and psychologically must be difficult to deal with. But, but, but I, was, um, I was poorly and I was diagnosed with CF. Um, 
my my mum my mum my mum passed out because it was a big shock and um they they didn't know anything about the disease they were carriers they had one copy of the gene each and uh but they didn't know that and they didn't know anything about the disease there were far fewer people with cf in those days i think because we didn't live so long nowadays there's slightly more but it was it was a shock and uh a bit devastating and um i I think that um we so for me i didn't know any difference so i was just growing up and uh gradually learning about this disease and what i needed to do to try and stay well and be poorly less often and get the most out of life um but but it certainly takes some uh work to understand what's involved uh, and, and what, what, what explain to listeners what, what would be when you're an adult the average daily routine because there's no day off with cf is there it there's no cure just so listeners understand there's no there's rem- no there's no, no. you just you're, you're in it every single day there's no days off that's right it's in your, your it's a genetic disease so it, it it's always there and um it comes out uh, more as you get older normally and i was quite healthy when i was little playing sport helped me to stay well but i think i was lucky enough to be quite well so i could do that uh and as i got older i got more serious infections one of the uh, features of cf is that um, cf lungs can't cope with infections um in the way that people who don't have cf lungs can so um, there are certain bugs which are very dangerous to people with cf and can become permanent residents in the lungs and then you just have to live with them. And I had two quite serious infections living in my lungs from my sort of mid-twenties. Um, and then it becomes a case of managing those infections, which flare up from time to time, uh, and as well as doing the other stuff. And, and I suppose that after a while, I got into a routine where I was needing to spend about three hours a day and then became four hours a day in a normal day and that was a mixture of taking pills um doing inhalers uh, taking nebulizers uh, and i had to take up to seven a day at one point um now those are those feel like a new those feel harder than other treatments because i think you have to you have to sit there and breathe in this a drug that comes to you through a mist so it gets into your lungs but it takes time and you have to be in a certain place and you have to prepare the often prepare the, the medicine before you inhale it. And then afterwards you have to wash it all up and it has to be sterile. So it's, um, it's quite disruptive to, to a sort of a normal day in some ways. And I think it, when you're younger, you feel that by doing that kind of stuff, it, you're missing out on the, the more fun stuff in life, which is a challenge. Um, and then, and then airway clearance. I mean, the classic, the classic sort of um, symptom of CF is that your lungs become clogged up with thick, sticky mucus because um, they're not very well hydrated and um, the mucus doesn't clear away and it just builds up and it obstructs your breathing, but it becomes a perfect kind of breathing breeding ground for, for bugs. So um, for many people, that's the main issue and the main sort of threat to health. And, and the way we deal with that is rather... Um, unsophisticated in sense it's um, breathing in a mist which sort of loosens the mucus and then doing breathing exercises and putting yourself in different positions to try and huff huff it up and clear it by coughing or clever breathing exercises so it's um quite hard work physically 
it's not pleasant, often makes you feel sick. It used to give me a headache and sort of churn up your tummy and it's tiring. And I think one of the, the you know, maybe we'll come on to, to the psychological aspects later, but I think when, particularly when I was little, I actually felt, felt quite healthy. And you have to do these treatments even when you're healthy. And I think it's challenging to have to do that and commit the time and energy each day uh, when you're not necessarily feeling any, you're not feeling better. And in some cases, it makes you feel worse. Yeah. And so you really have to have a, a sort of positive um, a sort of compelling vision of the future, really, to to um, to understand and, and motivate yourself to do this every day. It's quite um, quite to override the harshness of daily regime. Yeah, yeah. It's not like taking an aspirin when you've got a headache, you know, and and that, it makes the headache go away. And you think, great, that was a good treatment. Um, it's more like an investment in the future, and I, I think that that is difficult, uh, particularly when you you know from an early age that uh, well. Is better now, but when I was when I was diagnosed, when I was three and diagnosed, my mum and dad were told I wouldn't make it to ten years old, and I I didn't know that at the time, but I gradually became aware of it, and um, it's something that I've always lived with the idea that I wasn't going to live very long, and uh, when I was fourteen and I was about to trans start transitioning to a, an adult doctor from a pediatric doctor, uh, um, he said to me, well you're 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 not going to make it to 25 and you'll have to have a heart and lung transplant when you're 21 and now that was a cheery uh, conversation wasn't it yeah and the next part of that, that then he said and you can't have children and um you better do your treatments and um it it was really difficult as a 14 year old and did you put that doctor on your christmas card list straight away <laughs> I hate. I didn't like. I wasn't. He wasn't my my yeah, favourite person in the world. Bedside manner there, Ali. No, he he wasn't. And but you know, in hindsight, I think he did me a favour. Okay. Be because I wanted to prove him wrong. Yeah. Because I I thought you don't know what you're talking about. This isn't me. This doesn't apply to me. I can't have this disease you're talking about. I'm going to show you. Yeah. That, that doesn't apply to me. And I set off to prove him and other people who said things like that wrong so although it was very traumatic at the time i sort of look back on look back on it now and think maybe that was uh, maybe he did me a favor but um so i think that the combination of great of having to do this treatment is sort of heavy bird heavy treatment every day and no even you know no you can't have a holiday from it weekends or even when you go on holiday you still have to do it and take all the stuff yeah um as relentless and uh, hard work and um, I think combining that with the fact that you think you're not going to live very long, it, it feels like a doubly cruel because it's as if, you know, you're going to have live half as long as most people is how you kind of think or people in those days did. And yet you have to spend a lot of your time doing all this stuff um, just, just to really um, to stay, just to tread water, just to stay alive. Really. It's not, it's not a case of working hard to get better. So exactly. I think that then you have this notion that it's a bit like swimming in a in a river against a against a heavy current, and um, you have to keep swimming as hard as you can, and you're not actually moving forward. You're just sort of managing to um, stay where you are, and you know perhaps with the knowledge that behind you is a a steep waterfall, and if you stop swimming, you might fall off it and go down there. So it it yeah. it's, it feels cruel, um, but it's it's you don't have any choice in the matter actually. So. So it boils down to 
um, finding a way, uh, finding a way that works for you. And, um, you know, I always, I always enjoyed being alive and, uh, and, uh, the, the reality of it and, uh, found, found meaning and pleasure in things. And I, it boiled down to, I love being alive and I want to carry on being alive. And I think it forces you to, to sort of confront those kinds of things. Okay. Now, one thing that many people don't realize or appreciate about cystic fibrosis is that it's extremely solitary and isolating because we're not supposed to be in the same vicinity, in the same area together, are we? This because of the risk of cross infection. I've known Ollie for about 10 years and I'd say he's a really dear friend of mine and I've never met him. So listeners, imagine someone that's super close to you, you've never met. I mean, there can't be many people in your life that you're that close to, but you've never ever met never shake hands hugged um but we are super close because we have the same condition and and know each other inside out because it's a similar journey um survival and we we know appreciate our highs and lows but that's something that very few people understand is exactly that we're not allowed to be together and and sit down and share the woes together that's right. Yeah, it is. A, it's a, something that people don't realise, and um, I think so. Actually, when I when, when I was little, actually, um, the the knowledge of cross infection risk wasn't wasn't there really to the same extent, and people did mix. So, as you said, people with CF can't meet each other in person. We can meet other people, but can't meet other people with CF um, because um, you know bugs that we swap can be very dangerous, and and but. but you know, bugs we have are not dangerous at all to people who don't have CF because they have, their lungs can cope with it. Yeah. So it does feel normally, of course, if you if you have a problem, especially a serious one, you want to get together with other people who have the same problem and, and talk about it, share share experience, just speak speak to someone who you think can understand, and um, maybe figure things out together. And um, especially with something so personal, you you would. I think most people want to do that face to face and and have some sort of sense of fit for being in the same place, uh, and and as you said, we can't do that, and and it does bring extra challenges. But you know, going back to to my earlier days, when when there wasn't the knowledge, and and we would go, my mum and dad would take would go to meet other parents, and uh, take me along, and there were some older kids there. They taught me how to take pills, for example, because <laughs> you know people people have big pills. People we have to take pills every time we eat, and uh, I think, you know, I, I used to have to take, I think, about 60 tablets a day throughout the day. And, you know, some of them are quite big. And you, so you have to get used to taking pills. And um, so they, these are slightly older kids taught me how to do that. And whilst my mum and dad, mostly my mum actually, were talking with others and learning about how to, how to look after me, really, and swapping, swapping know-how. Uh, uh, and we used to the, the one of the things of cf is you we can't digest fat because we don't produce the enzymes to uh to digest food in the normal way so we have to uh in those days the drugs did, the the artificial enzyme didn't exist which we now take in a pill but in those days they weren't there so um we're told not to eat fat and 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 then gradually they did develop some little powder which you would sprinkle on the food and it would start to digest the food the on the plate yeah. and, and it would stink. Something out of a horror movie, wasn't it? It's horrific. Uh, and of course, um, how, uh, and so we're often advised to do eat between 
sort of one and a half and two times as much as other people to get so that we actually get the nutrition out of the food because we're not so efficient at taking nutrition. And, and so you, you, how, how, how do you convince a little kid to eat this stuff and more of it than normal? So they, ha- they would talk about recipes and basically ways to sort of trick us into eating. So I feel, you know, now that doesn't exist. And I think it makes it harder for the, ch- for the kids and the parents because, if, because um, you know, it's not so easy to meet other parents if you've got a young child unless you can afford to, you know, childcare. But um, it, it, so in a way, I was lucky with that. But then as I grew up, um, the, the knowledge of cross-infection became more... Uh, more a factor uh, and thank goodness because it's uh, very important and pro- you know it probably mean it is the reason I'm still here but it doesn't take much to pick up a bug which can really um, affect your trajectory so but yeah great as you say I mean where you where, as you say it's it's something you have to deal with on your own and you, you can speak to to the healthcare team or or friends or um, if you're in a relationship a partner or your mum and dad or or or, or others who, who you think can help but they don't it's hard I think for them to understand and, and especially if it's family I think there there's some um there's other issues there I mean my mum and dad felt quite guilty actually I think this is something I hear a lot that and somehow my CF was their fault because they were they'd given me the genes and we've had, we have long conversations about this and I say well this is uh, this doesn't make any sense to me if you'd feel guilty because I wouldn't be here without you and um, I uh, if I didn't have CF I wouldn't be me and I really like who I am (laughs) and uh, and um, so and I don't know any different and so I don't think it makes any sense at all for you to feel guilty you've done me the greatest favor in the world but somehow it's hard and so when when you talk I think with family there's a there's there's some sort of background emotions which which stop you really having a um the kind of conversation that sometimes you need but um so 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 i think that although you can talk nowadays the social media and you can talk on over the web and over the phone it's it's not quite the same particularly i mean some people might think well what's the problem i talk to people on the phone and the web all the time but i think it's that's quite easy if you already met someone in person you trust them and then you start speaking in, in in other ways but I think if you've never met a person, it's quite hard to, to get that, uh, A, to get the trust and, and think, okay, this is someone I want to I sort of get to know a bit better because everybody's ex- experience is very different, isn't it? Yeah. And the way they look at things is different. Uh, and B, to, um, to have a meaningful sort of relationship because it's, it's quite difficult to, to, to not meet people that you really want to meet, to be honest. Yeah. And um, it, it, it adds another challenge, I think. Yeah. I mean, every facet of a life is affected by CF, um, whether it be relationships, trying to get up, go to work. It's very tiring. I don't think, I think that's underplayed, just how tiring an illness and all the medication is. Um, people I know just have an antibiotic for two weeks and will BMW, what I would call BMW, which is bitch, moan and whine about how mm. it makes them feel. But we're popping 40 pills plus in our, in our bodies every day of which quite a few are antibiotics yeah and we just don't know anything different that is our our survival life and it's to have health that other people would despise it's not splendid health at all but we hold on to what we've got and that's a segue into asking for you ollie um what explain what led to you being um on the transplant list 
I will. I will. I think what you said there, though, hold on to what you got, is something that's been really important to me. I think it's easy to start focusing on things when you, especially when you lose things or you lose the ability to do things, or you see other people doing things that you can't do, maybe who you grew up with. I think it's easy to sort of focus as a human to think, oh, what am I missing out on? What can't I do anymore? But I think one thing with me was to just forget about that and just think, actually, I can still do quite a lot. What can I do? And uh, what can I affect? And just to focus on that, I think if you, I think that's quite a good tip and something that helped me a lot. It's not not easy, but um, uh, as you, in particular, as my health deteriorated, and and you, and this is where the transplant comes in because I think probably after the age of about thirty, between thirty and thirty-five, I started to feel, see, experience CF in a way I hadn't, um, and it became much more a factor in my life i'd find myself with the infections flaring up more often um, and those are completely uh, un- impossible to predict a lot of the time so you, you can sort of find yourself feeling pretty good and then um suddenly you're in hospital for two or three weeks and there's no warning i found um but i think that was happening more often to me so um rather than being the the, the exception it became something i was doing two three times a year for two weeks or three or sometimes four weeks if it was a particularly stubborn um, infection um, and then wasn't necessarily re- bouncing back in the same way I used to when I was younger and um, my lung function which is you know the way that um, the way that uh, clinicians uh, sort of measure your your health in a sense and where you are on your trajectory um, lung function seem, is the is the key indicator that a lot of people focus on and that was that was starting to starting to come down and um i think that i would so i was in hospital more often and having to do more treatments at home because i was having more complicated bugs which needed extra treatment at home more nebulizers um uh, different different pills and different um different approaches and the the airway clearance was harder because um, because uh, my lungs were just uh, losing um, the kind of uh, elasticity and um, uh, sort of not doing what they were supposed to do in a healthy lung, so they weren't helping me as much, and I was having to do more of their job for them, or sort of using, it may sound weird, but using other muscles that weren't designed for breathing to breathe with to help almost force air in and out in a more mechanical way. And so... They, they, with stiff lungs and sort of thicker mucus and stickier mucus and just less energy and of course you're coughing more people with CF cough a lot and as I got older I would cough more and you know that's difficult to deal with as well I think I'm once I met I thought I estimated that I cough between four and five hundred times a day mm. and um you know it's if you're not coughing I found, find myself often thinking try, trying not to mm. cough because it's it gives you a headache, it makes your airways tight and it annoys people and they often show it. So I think it, it's just a simple thing that people with CF cough a lot and it's a challenge not to. And, yeah. um, and so so, so and that makes it harder to do treatments where you need to breathe stuff in or, or calmly bring things out of your airways. Which help need, they need to be relaxed for that. So to cut a long story short, it was just taking more out of me each day just to stay where I was. And, and I was having more time in hospital they were more serious infections. Uh, I got, I was diagnosed with CF related diabetes 
um, which, which is a common um, complication of, of cystic fibrosis. It's a, um, it has to do with the pancreas again and not, um, not releasing insulin in the normal way um, because basically the tube gets blocked. So um, insulin is released, but it's trapped in the pancreas and so you don't have enough insulin. But then suddenly the plug will unblock and you have too much insulin. So it's a rather um, random form of diabetes that's difficult to manage. But, you know, it was um, something that I had to cope with as well. And um, actually, it meant more treatment because it meant regularly pricking my finger and measuring my blood glucose and in injecting insulin four times a day, uh, which, on, which I, when I was already doing a lot of treatment felt quite unfair. And there's a, a phase where you think, oh, we've got another thing to deal with. I can't cope with this. Mm. But then, but then the, the fact that my blood sugars weren't, weren't very stable was, was, was in fact, um, causing problems with my lungs and I was having more infections partly because I was running high glucose and glucose is basically food for bugs. So I found that once I started treating the diabetes, my, my weight improved, you know, don't want to make this a Wikipedia of CF, but another aspect of CF is that it's because we can't digest food properly. Often we're underweight. Um, and, um, and so I put on a bit of weight. So I came up to a much more healthy weight and I found that, um, I had a bit more energy actually, and, um, and my, my lungs became a little bit more stable. So it turned out that that was a good thing. And, and actually, once you get used to measuring your blood, blood sugars and taking a bit of insulin, it, it's just something you integrate into your daily routine. Yeah. So, 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 so that, that was something to deal with, but it, it probably helped me a bit. Um, I think it was a gradual, it was a gradual deterioration over about, um, five to five to seven years of this all of these things worsening really um and there's sort of various tipping points in your in your life where you with cf as your health becomes more more important to to focus on and you don't feel so well you know other parts of your life have to change i think and so so i i um got to the point where i thought okay now this looking after my health is my full-time job really I need to make that my full-time job and yeah. I had to stop doing full-time work and um, become more independent and work as a freelancer or do independent projects uh, which gave me a bit more flexibility but still um, well still still working I like I like working and being part of being part of projects and and frankly earn money and pay the rent so um, as I say, it got it got more and more of a, a dominant factor in my life, and um, I moved from from London, where I was I was living, down to back down to Devon, which is where my family are, my mum and dad, and my my younger brother and his family, and I have a lot of friends down here. I've always been very lucky to have a very close circle of friends, and uh, who've always known about my CF because I've been quite upfront about it, and um, and I needed a bit more support and um, a bit less less uh, pressure financially so so i moved back down here that probably helped me a lot uh, to to get on top of things um i think it's it's tricky because in often you get to a point where you, your lung function goes below a certain level which is 30 percent, and this seems to be a sort of a magic number and um and you and you sort of everybody says that oh, when you when your lung function goes below that level uh you're in the territory where you need to start thinking about a lung transplant. Yeah. And it, it, it used to be because people who had lung function that low had a certain number of years left projected in their life. And, and so it was, 
trying to trying to give time to sort the transplant out because the transplant can take um, to get ready for it and to be on the waiting list can take um, many years. I think the average is about two years waiting, but it can be longer and, and it, it can, you know, unfortunately for some people, they never find a, a, a set of lungs that matches and they, they get too poorly um, before the, the right lungs come along. But yeah. the average is about two years. And so they use, that's how you used to think is that if your lung functions below that level, you've got about two, three years left. So you better get on the transplant list. Um, and that's your best treatment option. I think that's a bit out of date. And certainly I, I, I know a lady whose who's lung function is below 30% for 10 years. And in that time, she's had two children and still works full time. So everybody's different and treatments are better. People are healthier now with, with that kind of lung function. And we can see things coming a bit more in a sort of medical sense. So I think that that is a little bit out of date, but unfortunately that's still the way a lot of people think. I don't think it's always helpful. But, you know, I, I got to... I got to third to sort of twenty nine percent and and started having those conversations, which is scary. You know, it's a scary concept that you you might not have. Well, I knew I wouldn't live very long for since I was born, but um, I'd always seem to be proving people wrong, and I, I was still there and able to do stuff. So I sort of stopped thinking about life expectancy, and um, but but. Uh, being told that um, being told that your your lungs are failing, um, that you know doctors use words that for them are bread and butter, but can be very scary, like respiratory failure. And you see see that in a letter, and you think, gosh, that sounds terrible. You know, I didn't realise I was that bad. And then it turns out, you know, it's worth probing a bit. So what does that mean exactly? And it turns out, they say, well, that just means you you need supplemental oxygen. So okay, well that's fine. I know that already. It's not some sort of horrible new news but yeah. transplant trans diabetes can be a word that's scary transplants a word rejections all of these words are quite scary and uh, i think you have to sort of navigate your way through them but i i was scared when it was first raised the idea of transplant i've i wasn't sure if i wanted to do it because um it's just it's how it feels like a very um risky and um sort of unnatural well it felt it feels like a slightly unnatural thing for i think as a human to have your lungs taken out and having some someone else's lungs put in and for that for that to happen that person has to has to die there's all sorts of things that you need to sort of think about and i wasn't immediately on board with it and i suppose i was in a little bit of denial about am i really that poorly mm. because you know i suppose in the background in cf in the last few years the science has come on a long way and the treatments have come a, come a long way and there are now treatments which are getting to the underlying cause of the disease. And so I, I suppose part of me was secretly hoping that I would, uh, a treatment would come along and sort of rescue me uh, before I got to the point where I needed a transplant. Yeah. I think that was probably in the back of my mind. And so it's difficult to accept that um, I was in that, I, I was in that situation, but um as usual, I think once you actually find out, once I actually found out about what what it meant and what was involved, and started to think perhaps a little bit more realistically about where I was, um, I realised that it wasn't so scary, and it and it really it's another treatment. It's just another treatment option. Um, it helps a lot of people in a big way. Um, I think that. Um, 
the, the team who, who dealt with me are, were absolutely amazing. And they've done this, they do this sort of 150 times a year, but certainly a few times a week. And for them, it, it feels it's a very familiar thing. And, and any, any situation that, um, that, that comes up, they've probably dealt with before and um, is very reassuring. And you look at the outcomes. Ollie, you mentioned, um, you impressed the hell out of me when you told me you had a, a sort of a military mindset to yeah. be a, the best ever um, patient or explain what you, how you framed it for yourself. Yeah, well, I, got to, I got to the point where I thought, look, I, I mean, again, it's a, I, I said it before, but I just love being alive. And that was, that's what it came to. And I thought, I, I want to live. I've got more to do. I feel there's more stuff for me to do, and um, I wasn't I wasn't very well. I was quite quite incapacitated, and and I thought I want something better, and I think this is a chance for it. And and so I did go on the list, and um, and did everything I needed to do for that, which involves some planning for the worst case scenario, and that is difficult. But I got to the point where I thought I'm gonna. I'm going to do this. I think if something's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. And I decided I was going to um, put everything into it and be, be the best transplant patient ever in my head. Mm. And so I, I set about doing all of the things I needed to do to give myself the best chance, which uh, exercise is important. Prehab is an important part of that. But I think that psychologically is where, where it's hard, to be honest. I think yeah. the rest you can just do and um it, it it's difficult because you don't know how long it's going to take it might take once you sign up it might take two days it might take two years it might take four years it might be never and you can and i had several false alarms along the way and it's normal to have false alarms by which i mean a call saying we might have some lungs for you you better get to the transplant center um so you get to the transplant center and then it might not go ahead because the lungs maybe aren't good enough or uh, there's some other problem and then you have to come back. So those are quite normal and difficult to deal with sometimes. But part of my way of dealing with it was because I've always found my mind is important and how you think about something is important yeah. and makes a difference. Um, and visualizing things is helpful to me, visualizing the future so that when it happens, you feel a bit familiar and that it's the, the good things become inevitable if you visualize them. And so um, I. I like to sort of, so you might say I play tricks on my mind, but they're techniques I use. It goes from um, if I, if try, uh, getting up in the morning to do treatments. Um, if you think about it too much, you'll probably stay in bed and not bother or it'll take ages. So I used to convince myself that I was uh, some kind of robot <laughs> and, and I just, you know, just executing a program and I didn't have any choice in the matter. My, I was just going to do it anyway. And, just basically try not to think about it and just go into sort of an autopilot mode. So instead and of the CF being a Terminator, you were the Terminator to CF. I would, that was my, that was, that was oh, my, cyborg. that's how I felt. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was not, I couldn't have not done it even if I wanted to. And, but the, the, as the, in the transplant period, particularly transplant waiting period, particularly, uh, I would think of myself as a, um, special forces soldier <laughs> and so because i thought this is actually kind of what people do if they're 
in their, if they're in special forces because they have to train very hard every day to make sure they're in they're fit and and ready to go into battle and and they don't know when they're going to be called into battle and they might never be called but they have to be ready every day and they may get called so they may have to maybe fly out to some base and um nearer to the the battleground and um and then then they may be stood down they have to come home again and then they have to maybe have a good night's sleep and then back into training and i was very much in that mentality uh that i would be ready you have to have a bag packed you have a special i had a special phone with me um (laughs) used to have pages i wished i'd have a pager but i decided to get a special mobile phone but it was a mistake because i just kept getting ppi calls on it they didn't get a very positive response when that when i picked up the phone but it's uh i was ready and um even i had um i had a checklist for all the things i wanted to needed to take with me um just to try and take away make it automatic and take away the need to think about things so i had a checklist and um my family who were there was a rotor where they would drive they would take it in turns to be the driver because you have to get yourself to the transplant center i live in plymouth the nearest transplant center for lungs for me is harefield in uxbridge that's if it's a good day five hours if it's a bad day lots of traffic can be eight hours um because of that they probably called me a bit sooner than they would have done if i'd lived closer by because um, maybe a bit earlier before they really have a good clue that the lungs are good and viable. So mm. probably I was li- exposed to more false alarms for that because of that reason. It takes you long to get there. So, so, so ready to go at any moment with a bag packed, this checklist. I, I even had some uniforms made. We had some, uh, we had, we had some sort of track suits with a, with a logo and, um, <laughs> color and, uh, caps because, um, I thought I don't have to worry about what I want to, what I'm going to wear. I'm just going to have this outfit ready, right? Oh, it sounds sad, but I, all my family had it. All my family had it as well. And oh, really, the whole lot. And it, yeah, and it, and they all had checklists, and oh. I even had I, I even had playlists, um, so that um, in the car we had a playlist, and I, I would be carefully chosen tunes. And um, I actually had some at home when I got the call. And it's just things like that that make it feel, made it feel more, um, more like a process, more, more, just took away the need to really think about it. And I felt I could just kind of run with the process and didn't get too scared or freaked out or panicky and didn't forget anything. But it, it helped me, but it also helped my family because, it, to be honest, the transplant, having CF and the transplant process is very hard on the family uh, and by that I mean my mum and dad and my my brother and his family and my my couple of my best friends, and um, we we all we were all in this together, and it felt like it. We felt we were sort of drilled and ready to go to battle, basically. Somehow that made it easier for everybody, and none of us really needed to worry too much about about that kind of stuff. So that sounds a bit simple and maybe a bit silly, but um, it worked for us, and I think. Part of it, part of it, is just finding something that works for you, isn't it? Um, but but this this idea of the special forces soldier was was powerful in my mind, and although although I, you know I'm hardly uh, um, hardly sort of uh, in the SAS, it, it's um, it was something that helped me helped me to cope with it, and to I guess is a framework of thinking that I found helped me. Okay. And, 
So, so after a couple of false alarms, which I can only imagine, it's just so desperate to get up all the way to the hospital and then be told that the lungs aren't viable. But after you battled through them mentally, because everything I'm hearing about your mental regime was just as important as your physical one, uh, what date did you actually get called in for the actual lungs that you now have? Um, it was um, it was 7th of July in 2017. So just over two years ago? That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you were you drove up there or were you blue lit up there or drove, drove drove i had i had one false alarm my first one actually about a year on the list where i went in a helicopter but that was because i happened to be in hospital at the time and i go to my hospital for my cf treatments in exeter and um they i just had some ivs so i just i was on the end of an of an, what we call an exacerbation or flare-up and i was actually quite well because um that that's um having had that kind of treatment for a couple of weeks and getting rid of an infection i was probably when i felt best in my sort of cycle of dealing with infection so it was a good time and um they have a um well, devon air ambulance have a couple of helicopters which are based there and um i don't know if they're entirely supposed to do this but they um they um flew me up to Herford in a helicopter which took 40 minutes and gave me a really cool uh, view over over the south of england and um distracted me completely because i've been in a helicopter before uh but Apart from that, well, that that time was a, a painful false alarm because I got there and um, um, was all ready and waiting around. Um, met the doctor, spoke to the the anaesthetist. Um, was they do tests? Obviously, your blood pressure, your weight, your, um, your sort of basic observations, and had a shower and shaved and. Um, ready ready to go really and then at the last minute the uh, transport coordinator came in and said I'm, I'm afraid it's a no-go and it was because the family of the donor had uh, withdrawn consent and so the individual was the the individual the, the would-be donor had had signed the organ donor register but it hadn't told his family and friends but hadn't just hadn't had the conversation like probably with the family and that that may have well have been the first they'd heard of it the first time they'd thought about it and they weren't comfortable going ahead and um that i mean in hindsight that that's something that i feel quite strongly about that if somebody decides to do that it, if if they, if somebody makes a, a well-informed um un, uh, you know not under duress a sort of fully informed decision about being on the signing the, the organ donor register then that should be um what matters and that their autonomy as a human being should demand that that wish is honored in the same way that if you if you die and you leave some money to the to a dog's home that, that um you know that should happen regardless of what the people around you perhaps think should happen to it yeah. so so, so I, I find that in hindsight i think that that's difficult for me but actually at the time i wasn't I, I didn't feel angry. I felt a little bit confused at first. All, all my family and the people around me felt a bit angry. And, but for me, I mean, I'm a quite a calm person. I think you have to learn to roll with the punches. And I just sort of thought, well, this has been a really good practice. Now, at least now I know what's going to happen and I can visualize what's going to happen after I've got the call. So that all feels a bit less scary and more familiar. Mm. And so I'll just feel better prepared for next time. And, and it also actually, um, because until then, I think there was still a bit of me that thought, am I really this poorly? Do I need a transplant? 
Should yeah. I wait? Yeah. Should I should I wait for longer? Uh, and I thought I thought, gosh, when I get the call, I might think how, I might panic and think, what am I doing? No way! This is this is madness. But actually, I got the call and I was completely up for it and quite calm and just quite excited. So and then I went through that false alarm and 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 by the end of it, I felt well. I'm really glad because now I know for sure that this is the right thing for me to be doing. Yeah. And I have, I can, I can, I have, I'm a bit more familiar with the process and I'm going to be really well prepared next time. So, so, so I think. Led to the 7th of July, 2017. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was, um, that was the, that was the big day. And I think I still, we drove up, had a pretty good journey pretty not too bad the traffic the time before we had to um get we had to call the police and get permission to use the um the lay-by to drive and that was quite exciting but this time was quite clear and um got there got got um got ready um waiting around with with the family around we were quite tired but quite um composed um i think it was a complicated situation so we got to the hospital about four uh five and um pm and then it i didn't i was still thinking uh midnight passed and i was still thinking it's gonna not it's not gonna happen it's gonna be a false alarm eventually three o'clock in the morning the uh the call, the transport corner came in and said it's um it's going ahead right. and yeah. you've you've got you've got an hour to spend mm. with your family and then we'll come and take you down to theater at four o'clock <laughs> so um so suddenly that all became very very real and um, I kind of look back on it with some fondness. I think I was very calm the whole time. I was very relaxed. I I didn't feel scared. I I, it, I think I'm, in hindsight I I should have felt a little bit scared, but um, uh, it all felt uh, it all felt right. And so I was ready. Spoke to my family. We were all in good form, and just prepared myself a little bit quietly and. Um, told everyone how much I loved them and that uh, I already felt I had a very, very good life and very, I was very lucky and um, I loved them all. And um, even if this was it, then I would feel I'd had a very, very good life and I'd be proud of what, what I'd done and what we'd all done together. So um, uh, I think that was an important moment and they gave me some pills to help me relax and then I was taken down to to the theatre at, at, the, at the four o'clock and quite quickly put to sleep and the next thing I knew uh, I woke up in um, in ICU. Um, I think I woke up Saturday uh, Saturday evening and I'd, I'd come out of the theatre at Friday lunchtime. I was in the theatre for about eight hours, possibly nine. Uh, but the the operation went very smoothly, I think, um, more smoothly than they'd imagined for someone of my age with CF. And, and I didn't need a lot of support in terms of blood transfusions or um, um, kidney dialysis, which can be something people need, or um, any kind of um, help with my breathing or for my heart you can sometimes need to be um put into a or plugged into a machine to help you help you do those things and take the pressure off your your, your breathing and your your heart so i came through quite smoothly and they put that they, they ascribed that partly to my exercise and my the condition i was in apart from my lungs and i think that's where the prehab really helped 
and um, as I say, woke up in the in the in the in the um, intensive care uh, with all sorts of machines around me and very groggy on lots of on heavily medicated. So I didn't have the moment some people describe where they sort of wake up and they suddenly take a deep breath of air and they feel like a new person and um, in, a, in a sort of a magical moment. I didn't have that, but uh, frankly, I woke up and I was just very pleased to be alive. I was um, euphoric that I was still there and I was in some, I was plugged into lots of machines and I was in quite a lot of, I was quite restricted and I was in pain, but um, actually I could already feel that it felt different to breathe. And, um, and it was, um, it was just a wonderful time to, to wake up and, and start to get my head around the fact that this had actually happened. I was still here. And that although I was feeling pain, it was only temporary. And that whereas in the past you suffer a bit with CF and feel some pain. One of the really challenging things I think is that, you know, that it's probably only going to get worse. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly this, this, although this was a appalling pain, um, it felt like a sort of a vice around my chest and there's, there's four lung, lung drains in to take fluid off and they, uh, they can be more painful than the wound actually because of the way they go through the ribs and the nerves. But it, it somehow didn't, I was somehow able to separate myself from that on the basis that it was showing that something good had happened and it was only temporary. Yeah. And I think I, I, um, I was transferred to, um, well, I persuaded the I persuaded the nurse in ICU to let me listen to music. They're not supposed to normally do that, but uh, I did. So I, I again, I'd, um, I'd I'd thought about what I'd want to listen to when I woke up, and so that helped me. And um, well, actually, and while you were having the op, your father rang me. I was uh, on the list of people to be informed that you were receiving your new lungs. So uh, I remember that date. Yeah, bless him. I, I, yeah. I, ha I had a list and um, uh, I, you know, have to organise yourself and be prepared for what might happen. So I had various lists for various reasons, but uh, he was certainly on the list, Tim. And, um, and uh, I think my, my dad took, took that job on and it can't have been easy for him. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm proud of him for doing that. And, um, you know, I'm very glad that, that, I, that you were part of it in a sense, Tim, because it's a, it was a, it's a it's a it's a difficult journey and you you kind of it's good to have people on the journey with you even if you can't meet personally but we all we all we are friends good friends and and it there's different different kinds of friends but certainly you can have a real friend even that you've never met and that's something that people people with cf i think know very well and so well, so I'll that forget that call with your father it may be the only time i ever speak to him but um I think I was on the way to pick up my son from school. Oh, and uh, yeah, he, he knew he. I think a couple of people because he said he said um, it's Ollie's dad, Ollie's dad, and a couple of people heard Ollie's dead and oh my god, minor heart attacks, and, uh, <laughs> and then and then it was quite quickly Ollie's had a transplant. It's been a great success, so it was a real kind of roller coaster for some people. But God, I, I think. Um, I don't know how he did it, to be honest. I think it must have been very difficult just to make those phone calls and, and talk to people that he didn't, he'd never spoken to before, but he, he knew were important to me. Yeah. Um, I, I think back, I think that um, I, once I had my 
thinking more about the, the actual moments afterwards. I think I, having having been in ICU and woken up and um, uh, had the breathing tube taken out, uh, which was much less difficult than I thought it might be. I think that can be something that's a bit, a bit of a scary idea when you're thinking about it beforehand, but uh, somehow it was quite easy. And I just started to feel a bit better. And then I went down to a um, high dependency unit, I think, um, having had the operation come out on Friday lunchtime, woken up Saturday night, and um, uh, by, by Sunday afternoon, I was on a high dependency, stepped down to an H high dependency unit, and which is you know less tubes and more like a normal ward. And um, Monday morning, I was on an exercise bike, and that was your uh, full recovery was in full motion. Yeah, I mean, uh, luckily, I think because one thing I hadn't quite appreciated beforehand was, you know, you're, you're told to do exercise and prehab and you think oh yeah that's a good idea but actually because my my chip my chest had been cut open and um that that makes it very hard to use any of your upper body muscles because they're sort of not connected or if you it's really painful to use anything above your waist really or above your um your sort of um uh, um ribs and so luckily i had been doing exercises so i could actually use my legs and stomach muscles to get myself out of bed I think otherwise I wouldn't have been able to get out of bed and because I could do that I was able to get up up quite quickly and walk about um with with some things attached to me still but still it feels very very liberated compared to compared to what one's been through so as I say I was on this exercise bike <coughs> with a physiotherapist uh, and I had a, 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 a SATS meter on my finger, which is a little probe to measure the oxygen saturation, something that we're very used to in CF because that's a, a marker of how you're doing. And uh, that was showing kind of 98%, which looks a bit alien because normally I'm sort of not used to seeing anything above sort of 91. And if I was certainly if I was doing any exercise, even with the oxygen, because I had to wear oxygen a lot of the time before transplant. We might be down in the high 70s or 80s and you, you can live with that for a bit but suddenly it's 98 and I'm like what that must be a mistake and I was on the bike for five or ten minutes and and it started going up and it went up to 100 percent, and it just felt surreal and um blew your mind yeah and then this physio, really, this, yeah? this physio came along and listened to my chest with, with his, um stethoscope and she said well that all sounds clear that sounds very clear and I genuinely thought, who's she talking about? And I had this kind of out-of-body experience. And, and I, then I suddenly kind of zoned into reality and thought, whoa, wait a minute, Dude, that's me. She's talking about me. I really have got new lungs. And this is different. This is very, very different. And in a, in a very exciting and, and um, incredible way. And so I think that was, the, that was my magic moment, really, I think. And um, from then I was doing more 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 walking initially and then going upstairs and then more time on the exercise bike and and um, getting used to um, new kinds of treatment I think I don't have to do a lot of the the treatments I used to have to do particularly the 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 nebulizers and the airway clearance which were the really tough ones for me uh, now I'm it's more about taking pills on time I have to take pills to suppress my immune system to make sure I don't reject the lungs and um exercising to um i think it's important to do exercise quite quickly to kind of establish the capacity of the new lungs if you mm. if you don't get to that you you might limit your ability in the future so I, that's something i understood quite clearly and 
uh, and actually it's just really wonderful to be able to walk around and um, do things that I couldn't do very easily before. Before before my transplant, I did wear oxygen. It was hard. Even things like having a shower were very difficult. Or eating and talking. Mm. I'd get breathless. Getting dressed was a project. It was exerting. And I'd, I'd have a shower wearing oxygen in the shower. I'd probably have to stop halfway through and have a rest, finish the shower, get out of the shower, have a rest, then dry myself, which was a separate piece of exercise, then have a rest and then get changed, get, and then probably have about an hour recovery, recovery period. So the whole thing is a big project. But you, could, you know, now I have a, I have a shower in five minutes and, it, and you move on to the next thing. It's like nothing. Um, but it, it, I was coming from a place where I really couldn't do very much. And even though I didn't quite feel it at the time, like looking back, I was quite poorly. And so suddenly things felt easier. Things which were a big project now were um, very easy. But I, and um, I, I did have, I nearly, went, I nearly left hospital after two weeks, which is quite quick. And then I had a, a minor complication. I had, a, I had a little period of rejection and an infection. And uh, also my, um, my stomach blocked because I think people with CF find it, don't always deal with them strong painkillers, opioids very well. And they can slow down the digestion and make you a bit constipated. So my stomach blocked. And also they took out one of my chest drains too quickly. They thought it had finished, but in fact it got blocked. So there was fluid accumulating behind so i had this sort of four things going on a bit of rejection minor infection fluid building up and constipation so that that was a setback but um well <laughs> the, the, the constipation can be dealt with <laughs> um there's treatments for that and uh, they put another chest drain in me and you know a liter and a half of fluid came off my lung in about an hour yeah. I think my, my lung, my right lung had gone from a sort of tennis ball size up to a back up to a kind of rugby ball size. And no wonder I found it easier to breathe and, um, and a bit of antibiotics and steroids, like the short, intense pulsing of steroids dealt with the rejection and the infection in probably two, three days. And after that, I felt like Superman again. So, so that was a bit scary at the time, but actually to have experienced what rejection looks like and feels like, was good because I think it's quite a scary concept and uh, you know I talk about some of these words that can feel scary rejection was one of them and uh, you know, oh, what does that mean is it all has it not worked properly you know am I gonna is it, is it cutting short my life expectancy again um, but actually it just means you know it's just it, 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 in in the way I experienced it, it just means that you you a bit of inflammation, and I needed some steroids to bring that back down and and get the balance back. And it it really wasn't didn't feel very bad at all. And so it was quite a relief in a sense to have experienced it because I think it took away some of the um, some of the fear of it. So that that left, and I just started doing more and more exercise and um, got outside the hospital for the first time, and that was wonderful to be out in the world. Luckily, I think it was August by then, so it was great weather, and um, and gradually just um, got out more and became more independent and left the hospital after about five weeks, I think, and um, started to figure out what this new body of mine could do and uh, what I was going to do with this um, with this future that suddenly opened up. Yeah. I, I, I think I try and describe it as being. Um, 
um, sort of going to sleep in a in a in a clapped out old um, old banger and waking up in a brand new Ferrari and thinking, holy mackerel, how do I drive this thing? <laughs> and um, so there's a bit of that and gradually learning what I could could do and what I couldn't do and um, and I, I I enjoyed I started running quite quickly. I wasn't running very quickly, but quite soon after my, uh, I left, I got I started running, and and that was brilliant. Just just enjoyed that and started running longer. Building it up, and you're running quite good distances, aren't you? Yeah, I got to sort of five k quite quickly, uh, and I hadn't done anything like that for since I was sort of in my in my late teens, to be honest. Um, but uh, I, I got into it and uh, enjoyed it, and just the feeling of running was the joy of movement is. Uh, is a is a wonderful thing when you when you've been you feel like you've been slightly uh, confined or not. I mean, I was going to say imprisoned, but I mean, in some sense, it's bit, it feels a bit like I imagine getting out of prison. It's very liberating. Suddenly, you can do this stuff, and 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 also, you're not your day isn't quite so defined by the medical treatments. You have some more um, um, some more control over what you can do with your time and and choice. So. So that that all takes some getting used to, actually, but it's very exciting and, and it feels like a, a bit of a miracle. Um, so, so I, I, I again against all odds, you, you suddenly felt more alive and out of danger. Is that a sentiment that you you appreciate? Absolutely. That's um, it's going from going from thinking I'm not going to live very long and I'm I'm defying the odds just by being here and having to work very hard just to maintain that to suddenly feeling um i haven't i'm not dying um i can do stuff i can do more stuff and i have this uh, future and um I, i'm 43 i've never i've never had a pension because i've never thought it would be worth it and now i now i'm thinking i now i'm i am sorting that out and if i'm sensible and if I'm, if I do the things I'm supposed to do, and I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, and um, take my medicine on time, I could have a pretty normal life expectancy. I, and I think that that's what I'm aiming for. I think if I'm a bit, if I'm, if I do what I'm supposed to, and a bit of luck, I could have another, I could have another thirty years. And that's a completely different way of thinking for me because I've, I've never really thought beyond the next few years and I've always tried to make the most of it every day and just try and um, uh, live for the moment in a sense and so 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 it's a it's an adjustment I think mentally from being being used to being a poorly person to being a healthy person and from a, being being a person who doesn't think they're going to live very long to being someone with a um, a decent future ahead and so and a, so, a different outlook completely different outlook yeah different relationship with time in a sense and um and that that is that is um a challenge but also um a privilege and it's something i'm i'm still embracing and, and trying to trying to come to terms with but also just enjoy and we've spoken before um about the power of presence and i think you told me you had a different version of being in in the now before transplant and since maybe expand on that for me well before until i had my transplant i think i was very much 
in the mind that I'm not going to be around very long and that I need to make the most of, I need to play the hand that's dealt, with, dealt to me, make the best of it and just um, appreciate life and the things and the people that are in it. And, and I think that um, that's how I lived. I would, I would just appreciate things and experience reality in a slightly richer way than I felt other people did. And um, sometimes I felt I was very lucky to have that. Um, and I would, I would think about what I was, how I experienced the world, what I, what I could smell, what I could hear, what I could see, what I could taste, how things felt. It just felt very real to me. And, and I, I thought, I sort of observed that other people didn't quite seem to have that. They would be, they would be elsewhere, mind would be elsewhere. They'd be worrying about a job, a mortgage, children or whatever. And I thought, gosh, that's a different, that's a completely different way to be. And I would be doing what I needed to do and, you know, earning money to, sort of, to, to pay bills. But also, I think just, just appreciating the reality of, of what, what I was experiencing around me. And, um, and, and of course, I was a bit unlucky to get the CF gene, but in lots of other ways, I was quite lucky. I think I'm, I've got a great family and friends and uh, I live in a, in a place that's nice and um, nice part of the world near the sea. And um, I am able to enjoy things and uh, usually have a pretty good sense of humour and don't take things too seriously. And I, I think um, I, I just was good at appreciating that and didn't worry too much in, in, in too far ahead. Um, and now I, I think things are different. I, I have to think about the future in a way I hadn't before and plan in a way I hadn't before. But, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm just very much happy to be alive. And uh, I really appreciate the fact I'm still here. And I've lost a lot of good friends with CF over the years since I was little. People who I've known who've had CF have, have passed away. Some I've, some I've known very well and some not so well, but each time that happens, it, it, it's difficult, I think, to cope with. And, um, and some, someone had to die for, for me to get the lungs I've got now. And um, of course, they would have, they would have, that would have happened anyway. And then I like to think that me having these lungs and having a, having a, a new lease of life and being able to, to respect that and, and make the most of it. I think I like to think that's a consolation to the family uh, and, and perhaps help make, take some of the pain away. But I, I doubt it. I, I think it, I like to think it might. And I've written a letter saying, saying how grateful I am for their, for their decisions and their, um, the, their incredible generosity of spirit and bravery. And that, that's, that's how I feel. And I just feel um, sort of euphoric still to be here and to be able to go out for a walk and, um, go in the park and play with my little niece and nephew who before before I had my transplant uh, I would I could be with them but more of an observer and couldn't really get involved with them or um, play with them yeah. and now I can and it's just wonderful and I can do I can do more stuff physically I can run around I can I can you know physically I'm quite strong now I can do pretty much anything uh, I would want to do and I, I'm more robust I don't have to 
worry so much about suddenly having to go to hospital for two, three weeks. Uh, of course, that's still a risk. It might. I'm sure I will have episodes in the future where, where I need to go to hospital. I've still got a serious condition. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been cured, but it's somehow more manageable and less um, threatening and um, gives me a bit more space to be, um, to be me. And so uh, at the moment, I'm just very appreciative of, of the, the moment and the reality around me. Um, and sort of with half an hour in the future, in a way I didn't have before. But uh, I, I think that what I've been through enables me to cut out a lot of noise and things that perhaps other people get very het up about. Yeah. And, and to, to understand what is important to me and what I need in life to be happy. Yeah. And so, so, so that retained some of the facets of pre transplant that felt a richer perspective, and you've got this new lease of life. There's a sense of wonder that you can, you've got this new Ferrari type body instead of the clapped out banger. And so, I've, it just sounds like you've got the in some ways the best of both worlds as far as your mindset. You pre it's not like you've forgotten how you felt, no new, new opportunity. It, it is that it, it is that um, I've got these mental resources and ability to appreciate things, which I think was sort of developed whilst I was um, dealing with, with CF. But um, and, I, and I think actually looking back, CF has given me some 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 things which I didn't really appreciate at the time, like being able to stay calm and composed and um, to, to live with uncertainty and be able to adapt and to be organized and disciplined. And um, just to not panic if you can't control everything, but somehow keep you cool and be able to um, prioritize and act and do what you can to influence a situation, even if you can't quite control it. So I think those are things which CF has given me and which I have still. Yeah. And, and the, as well as the ability to appreciate life and people and, and, the sort of the beauty that's in truth and not to think too much about good is something good or bad but is it true and if it's true then it's kind of beautiful yeah because it's real that that's something i feel quite lucky to have um but now i'm much healthier and fitter and i can do i've got more energy and more time and so in theory this should give me the perfect combination as I said, it's not an easy adjustment to go from being a poorly person to suddenly being a healthy person. Uh, and I had, I had got to a point where I thought I wasn't going to live very long. And so to be alive now, in a way, takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah. But I think, I think the, way to, the way I'm doing that is just try getting out there and doing stuff and, um, and just getting involved in, in normal things and, and starting to um, you know, be more social and uh, do more stuff and try new things. And, and I think our bodies can adapt in ways we would be amazed at. And um, it's getting easier for me, but it's a big transition. So I, I do feel very lucky and very grateful for, for what's happened. And um, I'm, I'm hoping I can make the best of it. And it's exciting to think about what, where it could go. Good on you. And one word that underpins a lot of what you said is resilience. And we've spoken about this Navy SEAL, this American yeah. Navy SEAL called David Goggins. Is it Goggins? And you I think so. It's 40% rule that when you think you've, you're done in some activity, or maybe physical, mental, you're only 40% uh, of, your, of your ability. Um, but actually, I think you underplay what you've done 
um, Ollie. I'd say if you just take your story, you're a, a different version of him and you've got 40% and actually you've gone and pushed it right up to 100% to get through what you've done. Show that resilience, show that fortitude um, and, and utter desire and fight to get through. So you'd put him on a pedestal, but I'd put you on a pedestal for different reasons. Well, I think, I appreciate I, I That's kind of you to say so, but I, I think that when you are, when you're in a situation where you don't have any choice, it makes it easier to do things that you might think you couldn't have done. And, you know, get, if you feel lousy and you get up and you need to do a treatment, which is hard, and you think, oh, I can't do this. But then you think, well, why can't I do it? What, what will happen if I do it? Am I going to explode? Will my head fall off? Mm. Will I, I mean, so let's see what happens. And, oh, look, I've just done it. You know, and you, I think you can... Um, I think you, you can just, if you, especially if you're in a situation where you have, you have really have no choice, you can, you can kind of, your body can just do miracles. I think, um, you know, but you have to be aware not to you know, push it too much, but we all have to get used to our body and find something that works for us. And, um, it's, um, it's a difficult journey, but quite exciting. And, you know, something that I think we can feel quite proud of. If I have a motto, if I had a, a sort of motto it would be um if it, if it works keep doing it if it doesn't work don't do it okay. if, you're not, if you're not sure do an experiment and, <laughs> and, I, and i think you and i think that's quite that's helped me as well i think just just sort of forget too much about what you think you're supposed to do or what other people do or, or what the general advice is and just you know i think work hard to find a way that works for you and everybody's different and I wouldn't dream to think I can give people advice necessarily but um I think the the thing I've learned is that um every you just have to fig, you have to find your own path and figure out what's important to you and then find find a way of living that works for you and uh, I think it's as simple as that a lot of the time well as this uh, podcast is called the gift I think that's the gift you're handing to to people who listen to this uh, that's your uh, words of wisdom that sums up what you've gone through. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you, Ollie, what's what's a good social platform for them to get hold of you? I uh, my my platform of choice is Twitter. Uh, that's been um, a bit of a lifeline for me over the last six seven years, and I think uh, it's a place where a lot of people with CF sort of a bit like a town virtual town square in a sense hang out and. For me, it's uh, it's been a an expression of how strong our community is, and it's a way to to stay in touch with that. So I, I'm Twitter is where I where I sort of um, meet the world in social media terms, and I'm there on um, at Ollie underscore Rayner, and um, I think if you if you want to if you want to tweet me there, that's um, that's a good way to start. Um, if you can't do that, then um, I guess um, I, I do some work with the CF Trust, and probably you could get in touch by the CF Trust. Okay. And um, I, th I think we people have a way of finding each other in this in this uh, in this day and age. So um, um, I'm very happy to to talk to people and share my experience, or um, or help out on projects, or uh, or just uh, just compare notes. Okay. Well, you're unique. There aren't 
not many people have gone through what you have come out the other side with rich understanding and learnings that you can have, make a big difference to many people in this life and this world so i really appreciate your time today ollie um who's who's to know that you're not going to be back on this because we could have talked for a lot longer um but i really appreciate you being on my podcast um again it's called the gift um and i'll be having um, other guests on who are going to share their life and health challenges um, that have brought them more resilience, calm and joy. Um, do reach out to me, Tim Watton, via uh, Twitter um, and also Instagram. And let me know the feedback on this podcast. But also, should you know anyone that would be a, a welcome guest, then do please reach out and let me know. But for now, uh, from Ollie. Rainer. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. And it's been a pleasure to have you on board. Um, but for me, uh, I'll sign off with my usual catchphrase. It's cup half full. Thank you, everybody. Bye.